Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a very um, good Easter holiday, wherever you all may be um, around the world. I hope for all of you that it has been a, a good holiday. I didn't expect to um, be back on the air um, so soon, but I had time on my side, and I figured why not uh, take advantage of it uh, before the uh, weekend ends. So here I am with all of you, my uh, ardent 101 History Podcast listeners, uh, back on the air discussing the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream by Kirkpatrick Sale. Well, we have a lot to discuss in this uh, segment, and as I've said before, and I'd say it again, regardless of the topic of the topics that have been discussed, we always have a lot to discuss, and that's important because by um, learning as much as there is in each segment, we know that we have gone more than one step forward, and going more than one step forward in the right direction is always a good thing. Even if it's on uh, topics that uh, we are not always 100% familiar about, which is also a good thing, too, in terms of going forward. We have to start somewhere, and we also have to always finish somewhere, but the bottom line is, no matter where we start and finish, we are still going um, in the right direction in terms of learning something that we didn't know before. So in uh, this segment, we're going to learn more about where Fulton goes in Europe, we're also going to learn more about um, another uh, type of device that he um, that he is convinced will um, spark a revolution for its time. However, um, the device that he uh, creates is one that has actually been um, how do I say it? It's been experimented with um, as far back as uh, the times of uh, ancient uh, Roman and uh, Chinese uh, civilizations. So uh, here we go with our first uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast segment to the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream. Where else did uh, Robert Fulton travel to in Europe besides England? All right, I'm going to give you all some choices. Do you think... Uh, it was the following. Do you think Robert Fulton went to uh, France? Do you think he went to Germany? Do you think he went to Italy? Or did he go to Spain? Where, where all do you think uh, Robert Fulton traveled to in Europe besides England? Well, the answer is choice A. He went to uh, France. Of course, I know one could say that, oh, so-and-so went to France. Of course, when we think of France, we think of the capital. Uh, being Paris. Well, and and, uh, beside, and for me, uh, if I were to think of anywhere else outside of Paris, I would think of uh, the southwest region of France, because that is a very um, prominent uh, wine region in France, uh, what is known as the, uh, I believe it's the uh, Warrencone or the Rhone River, uh, uh, Rhone River uh, wine region. Um, so, but usually uh, the majority of the time when I think of uh, France, I, I think of Paris, a.k.a. the Eiffel Tower. So uh, Robert Fulton arrives uh, into Paris, France around 1797, and he would go about studying uh, French and German. So he's got, you know, if he's going to be acquainted and living in France for a while, he's going to need to know, obviously, the French language. 
And it's probably not going to hurt for him to learn um, a little bit of other European languages, most notably uh, German. After all, just because he's living in France, it doesn't mean he's going to be uh, confined to just those whom speak uh, French. He never know. He might never know who whom else he could be uh, running into, who is of another uh, different European nation, who has business in France, whom is going to be speaking another language. And yes, it would be fair to say that Fulton might want to be acquainted with uh, a little German. Fulton is also going to learn, um, or I should say, he'll be learning about mathematics and chemistry. I'm sure some of you are thinking, why chemistry? Well. You know, sometimes even uh, sciences, even if it's outside the engineering arena, which is what Fulton is studying to become, you know, he wants to be an engineer, he wants to learn more about how these canals can be constructed, but it is fair to say that even sciences like biology, chemistry, and physics could go hand in hand with um, engineering. I mean, sciences do um, play a role in, uh, in how uh, something can be constructed short and long term. So prior to Fulton's uh, departure from England, he had begun drawing sketches of seawater machine, or rather of seawater machines, I should say, designed for um, wartime, or I should say militaristic uh, matters, where with a grand envision, and this grand envision just wasn't the... Um, these um, sketches by themselves of um, seawater machines, but the greater envision for Fulton is where Earth's seas. Of course, when I think of Earth's seas, I think of you know the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, the Arctic, and the Australian Ocean being the five major seas. But at the same time, we should also be reminded that uh, Fulton is thinking more than just the oceans. He's thinking about perhaps one day the ocean connecting um, the river. In this case, maybe, maybe the Atlantic Ocean connecting the Hudson River that we would one day know as the Erie Canal. So for Robert Fulton, his grand envision or greater envision is for Earth's seas to be open to all seafaring nations. Okay, when I think of seafaring nations, folks, I think of nations whom are surrounded by bodies of water, you know, like the United States. Uh, Canada is surrounded by bodies of water. Um, European nations like England, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, uh, the, the list goes on and on. There are uh, nations in Africa along the coast, the coast of Africa, that are surrounded by water. Uh, like I said, the list could go on and on, but for Robert Fulton, he his grand envision is for... Earth seas to be open to all seafaring nations whom could freely navigate the waters without fear from any nation or any one nation whom was mighty, superior. You know, it's one thing to be mighty and superior, but a nation whom is mighty and superior can also do what to other nations, folks? That uh, mighty and superior nation can trample over all other nations whom want a piece of the pie. And what I mean by piece of the pie here is the right to freely navigate the waters without fear, without intimidation, without any kind of bullying. And when I think of a, um, a nation whom, um, whom is mighty, powerful, dominant, 
who pretty much can stand in the way and block any other nation's right to freely uh, navigate the waters. How about England? You know, Fulton was in England. Fulton uh, tried to uh, come up with some unique proposals, and it seemed like uh, those above him pretty much shot down his um, suggestions. Do you think it kind of left a, a bad um, taste in Fulton's mouth? Perhaps. But is Fulton giving up? No. But the bottom line is, is that he knows, and he's not the only American who sees this, but he knows that, um, that for any other um, seafaring nation to be able to freely navigate the waters, there's one nation that really needs to um, cut down on its, um, how do I say it, would need to cut down on its um, superiority, maybe cut down on its intimidation, and that being England. So what exactly did Robert Fulton seek to achieve through his drawings, or I should say sketches, of which militaristic machine? You know, I mentioned earlier about a seawater machine. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, there are ships that are, um, that are sailing the waters, I mean, which is great, but there has to be something else that Fulton is drawing that... Um, for many people, um, they would see as something that would be much later on down the road that they probably would not see in their lifetime. Robert Fulton is seeking to be the first whom would go about designing, or rather I should say inventing what we know as the submarine. You know, when we think of um, a, um, a seawater machine, the first thing that comes to my mind is a submarine. A submarine can be visible from above uh, the water's surface, but what else can a submarine do, folks? It can submerge itself. It can be underwater. It becomes invisible. So Robert Fulton wants to become the first person to go about uh, not just designing a submarine, but inventing it. However, Robert Fulton... I don't know if I'd say a rude awakening is the right way, but I think he um, will, he's going to come to the realization that he's already been beaten. He hasn't been beaten 100%, but, he, um, but his thoughts behind inventing a submarine have actually been going on much longer prior to his even being born. But people experimenting with submarines... Uh, started taking place around the time that he, around the time that Fulton was a young boy. As a matter of fact, it turns out that there was a submarine invented in 1775 by a Mr. David Bushnell, who was a Connecticut mechanic. So think about it, folks. 1775. Uh, I mean, we, you know, many in uh, Congress in Philadelphia, the Continental Congress, are still hoping for reconciliation. They're hoping that the Olive Branch petition that has been instituted by Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania will be so effective that King George III will come to his senses and realize that, hey, look, I have uh, overextended my boundaries. I have been a little too harsh to my subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean. Wishful thinking. Um, and speaking of 1775, folks, I should point out that this Tuesday, April the 19th, marks the 247th anniversary of when shots were fired around the world 
at the battles of Lexington and Concord. So for those of you who live in America, uh, maybe I've said this before and I'll just say it again. Uh, don't take freedom for granted. We must continue to be a, a shining um, beacon of light uh, for for everyone else around the world, considering uh, the sacrifices that we made uh, not just 247 years ago when the first shots were fired around the world against England, but in but really for that whole eight-year conflict of the American Revolutionary War and how we got to uh, become, over time, the nation that we are now. You know, we just didn't become a superpower overnight. And I think it's fair to say that even as we've been uh, progressing in this series, we are coming to learn that um, even by the time Fulton is experimenting with the steamboat and now all of a sudden with trying to come up with something that is the equivalent of a modern-day submarine, uh, Fulton is still needing to be reminded that America is not anywhere near being an industrial superpower. She's still an agrarian nation. But nonetheless, let's just remind ourselves that uh, Tuesday, April the 19th, uh, for those of us living in the United States and for those of you who have been following me for some time elsewhere around the world, uh, just keep in mind why April 19th, 1775 is important. And to think three years from now, in 2025, that will mark the 250th anniversary. But, but nonetheless, regardless of how many years ago it was, it's still an important date that must not be forgotten. So, yes, Robert Fulton wants to be the first to uh, go about not just designing the submarine, but inventing it. But he's got to be all of a sudden reminded that, um, that a, uh, Mr. David Bushnell of um, Connecticut um, was the first American to invent what we call um, a submarine that we know um, in today's world. And the submarine that Mr. Bushnell invented was, in fact, a militaristic one. And in fact, it proved to be uh, capable of, of functioning underwater independently to where um, it, uh, this submarine launched what was called a naval mine. And I'm going to mention uh, more about naval mines or a naval mine uh, later on in the podcast. But would it be fair to say, for those of you who are listening, that a naval mine might be the equivalent of something that's, that borders a torpedo? In today's uh, terminology, uh, yes. A naval mine was a self-contained explosive, or naval mines being self-contained explosive devices that were uh, used against enemy ships, in this case being British ships. And, you know, we have to think about this too, folks. In 1775, uh, what's going on in Massachusetts is a regional conflict, it's really not until 1776, just before or right about the time when Congress officially approves of the Declaration of Independence, which they did on uh, July the 2nd. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Committee of Five, being Jefferson, Livingston, Adams, Franklin, and Sherman, all uh, present the document on June the 28th, and it is adopted on the 2nd, and then the motion to um, go forward and officially declaring independence from England is on July the 4th. So the reason why I'm, I said a second ago 1775 was just more of a regional conflict, it's because we have not officially declared separation from England. 
But come 1776, we have the uh, New York campaign. The British ships are coming in by the droves each day. You know, one day there's 50 ships coming into New York Harbor. The next day you've got 100. I mean, they are sending the full force, basically, um, you know, letting the Americans know that, hey, we're, we're serious. So for, the, for David Bushnell, this is a perfect time for him to try to uh, launch um, naval mines against uh, British uh, ships. Uh, he did uh, try this, folks, but sadly, these naval mines had little significant effect. So, hey, you know, it's a great start, but the problem is that it's not enough to intimidate the opposition. Had Robert Fulton uh, first begun designing a submarine prior to his arrival into France in 1797? Uh, the answer is yes. But his designs, or rather I should say sketches and drawings, were done over a five-year span from 1793 to 1797. On December 13th of 1797, uh, Robert Fulton submitted a request to the French government where he wished to form a company whose purpose centered upon establishing a Nautilus. A Nautilus is another word for submarine, folks. With the ultimate objective in doing what? Would it have anything to do with just demonstrating the overall superiority of what a submarine could do, or would it mean uh, wanting to have submarines whose purpose was... Um, confined solely to destroying enemy ships of, uh, in general, not just only in times of war, but in times of peace. Choice B, Fulton wanted the submarines established because he, not just established, but to destroy British warships. He felt that by destroying British warships, that it would weaken Britain as a superpower and would allow for another European nation like France to supersede Britain to where France would have no competition along the European waters or just or not have to worry about any uh, competition with um, other European powers. The only other European power other than England that France would have to contend with is Spain. So for Fulton, his ultimate goal or dream would be to have the British Navy wiped out altogether. If these submarines are not only designed, but can be proven with the use of naval mines to pretty much take out all enemy ships, not only in times of war, but in times of peace. A little risky and a little uh, arrogant, to say the least. Fulton's uh, proposal to do all this, folks, I mean, do you think he had a good proposal? I hate to tell you this, but he didn't. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to uh, prove to you all that this um, submarine invention is going to do all these wonderful things. But his proposal, folks, or, or we could say that the, he didn't have a true blueprint. You know, when an architect designs something, he or she needs to have a blueprint. They need to be able to present to uh, the people above them and within the inner circle that this is what's going to be built. But this is where we're going to start. And this is how it's going to be finished. This is the this is the master layout plan of what this building or of what this uh, shopping facility is going to look like. Fulton doesn't have any of that, folks. 
His proposal did not provide information on what his submarine was supposed to look like. And so basically, if you don't have any proposal on what the submarine's supposed to look like, then how are you going to be able to provide for any kind of assurance uh, for long-term success? The only proposal that he sought out for was that of money. <laughs> okay. In other words, for every enemy ship that gets uh, destroyed or gets uh, knocked out of uh, service, just pay me X amount of money, whether it's partial damage to the enemy ships or if it's a complete knockout where the ship is no longer salvageable. Okay, even if Fulton got paid for, for X amount of money, whether it's for a partially damaged, damaged ship or a completely, um, or what we call a totally damaged ship, what is he going to do with that money? Is he just going to keep it to himself, or is he going to um, come up with something else? You know, for some people, they might have every reason to feel a little skeptical about this guy. It's one thing to propose something, but if you don't have anything to back it up with, uh, why should I be investing my money in your uh, scheme? So, for Robert Fulton, um, this doesn't really go anywhere. And come early 1798, the French government has lost interest in his ideas. Is it fair to say that some in the government think Fulton could be a swindler or could be what we might think of in today's time as a scam artist? Maybe, but it is possible. Well, what is Robert Fulton going to do, given that the French government doesn't see really any true desire in his ideas? Well, he's going to reinvent his original proposals, but this time it's going to include specifics on how the submarine would be designed. Okay, now he's going in the right direction. Okay, and what else is it going to include? It's going to include a small model that Fulton himself built. So this could be like the equivalent of a blueprint of how this submarine, based upon his designs, and upon what he has constructed, given it's a small model, what we might think of as like a small 3D model, this is what it's going to look like, folks, and this is how I'm going to be able to prove to you that it can be effective. And not only did he um, construct a small model, but, he, but the model he constructed he was trying to prove to the uh, to these people that there was a better assurance that that his model would not only destroy English English Navy but it would allow France to become Europe's new leader without any rivals. As well, how do I say it? As effective as this new proposal was, folks. Once again, Fulton's going to strike out. Why is he going to strike out? And see, this is where he has uh, shot himself in the foot. Fulton wants money for the destruction of English vessels. See, this is where he, he, he is so obsessed and perseverated. All he can think about is eliminating English vessels. Okay, he got rejected in Europe. I mean, we've all been rejected somewhere. But does it mean that we need to take it out on the people above us? It almost seems as though Fulton wants everyone in England to... Uh, it almost seems like Fulton wants everyone in England to be, um, to be gotten rid of. It's almost as if... 
how do I, the way I see it right now for Robert Fulton, it's almost as if he's living in this I, me, myself world. He's not thinking about us, we, ourselves. And if he's not careful, somewhere down the road, it could backfire on him. I mean, it's one thing to come up with some amazing proposals, but even proposals themselves do have limits. Especially if there are people who are skeptical of your proposals, skeptical of what the long-term ramifications might be if they do go forward. So here again, Fulton is caught up in the moment because he is requesting payment for all destruction of English vessels. Okay, we pay the guy. What is he going to do with the money? Is he going to swindle our money? Come shortly after the start of 1800, would Robert Fulton go before France's minister of marine? What I mean by minister of marine, folks, meaning like, you know, maritime um, industry. Would Fulton go before France's minister of marine and request building a submarine? Yes. And Fulton got permission to go forward with constructing a submarine. And I think it's fair to say that this was due largely in part because France's new Marine minister, uh, being a Mr. Pierre Forfay, was a naval architect, and he had known of Fulton's plans and, ambi and ambitions for the past few years. So, this man is obviously not a stranger to Fulton, but he knows what Fulton wants to do. Now, Fulton uh, built, or rather I should say constructed, more than one Nautilus, a.k.a. submarine, not long after the start of 1800. I think it's fair to say that he would have had to have constructed more than one submarine because as much as we all would like to think that he could have gotten it right on the first try, uh, history should always remind us that not, that not everyone gets it right the first time. But with time, success is still um, there. It's all about what the individuals do to make that dream reality come true. So for Robert Fulton... Yes, he does construct more than um, one um, Nautilus, uh, or I should say submarine, um, not long after the start of 1800. His first Nautilus that he built was made out of copper sheets at the Perrier boat uh, shipping station in Rouen, or Rouen, which is located on the Seine River in northern France. So we're talking about uh, north of Paris, folks. Uh, Fulton's first Nautilus came to resemble a modern-day, um, what we think of as a modern-day research uh, submarine vessel, considering it had for its time in 1800 uh, something very unique, being an observation dome. Of course, when we think of an observation dome, um, you know, I... I I think of domes as, you know, being circular, but an observation dome to me would allow someone to have uh, great amounts of, um, great amount of um, abilities behind observing um, something, not just from one direction, but perhaps from uh, many other um, angles as well, not just so much from a right angle, but a left angle, and even this... Um, research or what we call an observation dome uh, would allow um, a crew underwater to um, to see what would be in front of them from all different angles whether it was looking from the north from straight ahead being say north or if you needed to turn it 
turn your scope um, to a, a westerly direction or turn your scope in an easterly direction. The bottom line is that this observation dome is going to enable the crew, the crew people, or the crewmen of a submarine to better navigate what lies ahead, uh, both short and long-range distances. And, you know, most people would never think of this, and I didn't realize it too until I read the book, along with doing research, that the that the submarine that Fulton first, uh, his first Nautilus, also had a snorkel. Of course, when we think of uh, snorkel, folks, what do we think of? Um, a person or people going snorkeling underwater. And when you have, um, when you have a, a snorkel, what is that snorkel doing, folks? You're breathing into, um, you've got like a set of goggles on, and you've got a... Um, I don't know the right terminology, but you've got something in your mouth that allows you to breathe. And uh, breathing into it allows for the air to go out of the snorkel and up to the water surface. So the bottom line is, as you are um, swimming underneath the water, you are, you are still enabling yourself to breathe through a, a tube that uh, basically allows air to go upward and reach the water surface. So the submarine that Fulton constructed had a snorkel that allowed for it to function below the water surface while taking in air from surface above. To me, this all sounds rather revolutionary. You know, Fulton's one of those individuals who, you know, he's seen his share, fair share of ups and downs, but he still manages to get back up and do something about it. That's one thing you got to give the man credit for. Uh, did Fulton's uh, first Nautilus test dives uh, take place along the Cyan River at Rouen? Uh, yes, they did. The first test dives occurred um, on July the 29th of 1800 and proved successful. However, uh, Fulton did have um, did experience um, where certain test dives along the Cyan River did not go as effective as others, and that was attributed uh, due to uh, river currents. Well, it is fair to say that even Mother Nature herself can throw a few curveballs that are very unexpected, and you know, no matter how successful one can be during their trial runs, there are he or she will encounter a few setbacks. After all, isn't that what Mother Nature does? Sometimes that, a lot of times that's not a bad thing because even man has to be reminded that no matter what he's trying to achieve, Mother Nature will have to remind him that yes, you can be successful, but there are going to be times when I'm when I'll be in the way, and you will need to be reminded that you can only go but so far. Now the same day of July 29th of 1800, uh, Robert Fulton uh, decided to. Um, do something that was even uh, better. He took the Nautilus further down the Cyan River into an area known as Le Havre, where he conducted internal speed tests. Okay, when we think of internal, folks, we're, think, we're talking about the inside and external being on the outside. So Fulton is conducting what we, uh, 
what I'd like to call trial tests with his um, with this submarine. But these trial tests are within. They, there were two tests he conducted. One involved a lit candle, a candle I should say, where he was able to, to determine that the candle flame alone did not override the snorkel's air contraption, or rather I should say the device for getting air upward and released out. The second involved the testing speed. I thought this one was very unique. The second test involved a testing speed of his two crewmen cranking the Nautilus, and he decided to have them compete. I mean, he didn't ask for these other two men to take part, but he, uh, he saw where there were two men rowing on the water surface. He decided to see who could outdo the other. Well, it turned out that Fulton's, the second test, Robert Fulton determined that the Nautilus covered um, the waterway course two minutes faster than the rowing crew did. So it is fair to say that this Nautilus is doing some very revolutionary things for its time. You know, submarines do more than just fire a missile, of course in today's time a torpedo. Submarines move very quickly underwater. Um, they, uh, they're very unique because they, um, they are uh, machines that, in a sense, have a mind of their own. They, you know, travel incognito. For all we know, submarines, you know, for all we know, when we go to the beach, you know, we see ships out in the distance. We see, you know, small boats, cargo vessels in some instances going by, depending where we are in the oceans. But for all we know, there are vessels that are underneath, way out in the uh, ocean currents, um, far below the shorelines. And for all we know, there are vessels, underground, underwater vessels, being none other than submarines conducting missions. So whenever we are sailing the waters, we should be reminded of what is lurking below. And it's not always the sea creatures. But sometimes there are submarines when we least in places where we sometimes don't always expect them to be. So Robert Fulton, to me, you know, as I said earlier, he's been kicked around, but he's gotten back up and done something about it. And for Fulton, you know, there is still hope. There still is hope that his genius might prevail when this is all said and done with. What was the main intent, or I should say the main intent feature-wise on Fulton's Nautilus? The main intent, folks, had to do with a naval mine, or naval mines, whose purpose centered upon damaging to destroying surface ships, including submarines. So think about it, folks. We're talking not just about British ships, but perhaps uh, submarines taking out enemy submarines. I don't know of any other enemy submarines out there, but you know we should just be reminded of the fact that submarines don't always um, revolve their um, attacks upon um, one nation and their ships. That submarines can do other damage 
to another nation's submarines. Of course, when I think of a submarine attacking a ship, the one that comes to my mind is uh, what happened in 1915 when a German um, U-boat, being that of a submarine, this U-boat had done more than um, just attack one ship. She had attacked other um, enemy ships who ventured into her uh, territory. But she did take out a famous um, ship. As a matter of fact, it was of the Cunard Line that was a competitor of the White Star Line. Of course, three years earlier, in 1912, the RMS Titanic sank. As a matter of fact, April the 15th, uh, two days ago, marked the 110th anniversary of the ship sinking. But three years earlier, yes, the Titanic uh, sank. Three years after, the Lusitania, the Cunard Line ship, tragically uh, sunk in the uh, North Atlantic. And it sunk at the expense of um, a German U-2 uh, boat, or German U-boat, being that of a submarine. A submarine that basically felt that any ship that came into her territory without any warning was auto an automatic enemy. And sadly, um, long story short, the Lusitania had been warned not to travel in, um, in, the, in waters in time of war. And the captain had been advised to take a different uh, course. The captain did not heed to the warnings. And long story short, um, sadly, the ship uh, met a very tragic fate. It only took the Lusitania probably about 20 minutes to sink, whereas for the Titanic, it took two and a half hours. So... The bottom line is, is that um, submarines, they, have, they do a lot of good, but submarines throughout our history have also um, proven to have, uh, have proven to have um, caused incidents that uh, were matters of uh, national security that uh, resulted in tragic consequences. So in the case for Robert Fulton, the main intent feature for uh, Fulton's Nautilus is that of a naval mine whose purpose is centered upon doing what, folks? Damaging to destroying surface ships as well as other people's submarines. And, and again, folks, what are naval mines? Self-contained explosive devices placed in the water used for both offensive and defensive protective uh, purposes. Now let's forward a year later, come 1801. Uh, who's president of the United States come March of 1801, folks? He succeeds John Adams, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. So come July the 3rd of 1801, one day before the United States celebrates a, being a quarter of a century old. July 3rd, 1801, Robert Fulton goes back to the Cyan River around Le Havre with a revised and improved Nautilus, which had a depth of 25 feet. The vessel remained below for an hour, which is remarkable, but even better, folks, this vessel stayed longer below thanks to Fulton's ingenuity, or genius, I should say, where he added on a copper bomb. I know that sounds a little scary, a copper bomb, but trust me, folks, when I read about this, the copper bomb was revolutionary because it provided 200 feet uh, times three... Um, 200 feet times 3, so the square, when you multiply 200 times 3, folks, that's 600, 
why is that important folks because 200 feet times three times three feet of air being now this helps extend the time underwater to where this nautilus was down below for four and a half hours folks in 19th century time that is remarkable early early 19th century folks it is just beyond remarkable onto itself the first trial involving the naval mine was attached to the nautilus and did did fulton uh, use a naval mine but did he use it on an enemy ship no he didn't folks he actually got um he got permission from the french admiralty where a trial run uh, occurred using a naval mine attached to the Nautilus and it resulted in, in destroying a 40-foot uh, sloop or 40-foot um, yeah, sloop, a French um, ship. So there was success. Robert Fulton's achievements with the Nautilus um, drew um, eyes or the attention of the French Emperor Napoleon uh, Bonaparte Fulton's main objective behind the Nautilus once again centered around using naval mines to uh, destroying enemy ships, being most notably Britain, with getting profits in return per the sinking or destroying of all vessels. But this, um, but I should point out here, but the sum also. But the summer of 1801 provided a disastrous as the naval mine experimentation yielded no uh, results other than the uh, trial one. So in other words, Fulton tried to use this on some other occasions, but it didn't really prove to be successful. So there again, I'm beginning to wonder if someone is trying to tell him, hey, look, be careful how far you go with this naval mine. It's one thing to have a submarine, but should we be focusing on naval mines left and right because if we're not at war why use it yes you can have it for protective purposes but should you automatically be launching it against someone else of another nation where if you're not careful not only will they retaliate but they might want to go to war with you so yes robert fulton's achievements did draw the eyes of napoleon bonaparte but even Napoleon himself, folks, Napoleon Bonaparte himself in the long run saw Fulton, saw Robert Fulton, believe it or not, as a fraud. What does that tell you right there? The emperor, the French emperor of all people, sees Robert Fulton as a fraud. Whom did Robert Fulton meet while in France uh, during the year of 1801? Did he meet... Um, did he meet someone who was an American? Yes. He met U.S. Ambassador Robert R. Livingston of New York. And we've talked about him from previous podcasts, and I have a good feeling that even after today's podcast, we'll probably talk about him again. So yes, Robert uh, Fulton has met U.S. Ambassador Robert R. Livingston of New York, whom shared the same grand envision of building a steamboat, which would one day revolutionize how mankind navigated the waters in transporting both people and goods. Looks like Fulton may have finally met his match. Fulton and Livingston agreed to work together on building a steamboat, which included doing trial runs along the Cyan River. Fulton made drawings and models 
and also conducted water-resistant experiments. And what do I mean by water-resistant experiments, folks? Okay, um, you know, what's the bottom of a, a vessel, folks? The hole. So for Robert Fulton, he's got to make sure that the hole can be resistant. In other words, if, if the hole flattens out, and all of a sudden the hole just breaks apart, then the hole is no longer water resistant. Okay, what if there's a dent or a small crack? Is the rest of the hole gonna stay intact? So it's one thing to build a hole, but you gotta make sure that the hole itself, H-U-L-L, hole, you gotta make sure that that bottom uh, mechanism, bottom um, plating is gonna stay um, resistant because you never know what you might be encountering uh, below the water surface based upon the depth at which you are uh, going in. And real quick, uh, when one time when my wife and I visited Jamestown, they told us aboard one of the ships, um, can't remember which one it was, but they told us that, that the more sediment that was brought up along a person's oar, or, or just more sediment that was brought up in general, that meant that they were going into shallow waters. The less sediment that brought that was brought up meant that they were uh, navigating the, into waters that um, that had deeper uh, depth levels um, from deep deeper depth levels uh, from bottom uh, to top. So um, the first uh, trial uh, that um, was conducted saw the steamboat uh, perform solidly well. However, Fulton would later go about rebuilding and uh, re-strengthening it. What did uh, Fulton and Livingston envision uh, for America steamboat-wise? Both men wanted um, a steamboat that could sail well over four miles an hour. I, I think anybody would. But the, not only do they want um, a steamboat that can sail well over four miles an hour, they want it to be able to do. They want it to be able to go one way and then make the same trip back, vice versa. They want the steamboat to go not only well over four miles an hour, but to do so going from New York up to Albany and Albany back to New York, vice versa. And Fulton, uh, it's not just one um, version of a steamboat that he's got in mind. He's got a couple of different versions. Fulton, his goals vary all because of boat size. For example, a boat of 90 feet long with a 6-foot beam going at 8 miles an hour, making the New York to Albany run would, in his eyes, it would take 18 hours with a profit of nearly $200 each way, so we're looking at about $400 total. He also had a grand envision of a boat being 120 feet long with an 8-foot beam going 12 miles an hour that included um, 20 passengers. Fulton was a man whom was obsessed with calculations netting big profits. You know, it's one thing to want to net a big profit, folks, but at the same time, wouldn't it be fair to say that you also would need to think about safety? Absolutely. You know, you also got to think to yourself, okay, yes, I can make all the profits I want, but if I'm not Placing safety first above profits, that could come back and get me somewhere down the road. Fulton, uh, I should point out that Robert Fulton did 
do any of you all think that he ever really knew the actual distance from New York to Albany? Actually, he didn't. His first estimate, folks, was 144 miles, and his last was 192 miles via waterway up the Hudson. It turns out, though, that during his time via the waterway, that from New York to Albany, each way was 160 miles. So if you think about it, the first estimate being 144 miles, was only he was only 16 miles off, and his last being 192 miles, meaning he was 32 miles off. So each attempt, so if you take about 16 plus 32, 48, you know, it's really not that bad, folks. I mean, considering that his uh, projections weren't too terribly bad, but the, the answer is actually 160 miles each way. October 10th of 1802 saw Robert Livingston, along with Robert Fulton, both men agreed to a 50-50 uh, compromise where both men would share the profits equally and set up a company in the United States whom um, would take out a patent. Fulton uh, agreed to go to the United States and oversee the building of the boat. However, if this failed, what was Robert Fulton going to have to do? If Robert Fulton failed on his, on his end, he was to reimburse Robert Livingston. Yeah, if you don't reimburse Rob, Robert Livingston, I think it would be fair to say that you wouldn't hear the end of it, just given his overall status. Not just as so much as a signer to the Declaration of Independence, but he is referred to as the Chancellor. You know, if you're referred to as a Chancellor, that's a pretty um, high distinguished honor. One that you don't take lightly, especially when it comes to favors and the two of them working together. Yeah, you better not uh, blow this opportunity. While Robert Livingston worked behind the scenes tirelessly to help secure uh, the Louisiana Territory to the Americans, a.k.a. Louisiana Purchase, Robert Fulton continued his experiments along with studying past and present steamboat models designed by other European inventors. That's good, because if Fulton's going to make history, he's got to look to the past. He's got to look to see, okay, what did other Europeans do or what did other people do before me? Why did they come up short? How can I not make the same mistakes that they made? Well, let's forward now to 1803. That is August the 9th of 1803. Robert Fulton finished work on a new hull fitted with new machinery by taking the boat out on the Cyan River. The boat moved against the current despite going or moving at about 3 to 4 miles an hour. But despite the success, it was short-lived. How was it short-lived, folks? Well, Fulton's boat ended up sinking. You know, the currents sure play havoc. Wouldn't it be fair to say that if Fulton was in um, enough of a, what do you call it, if he was in a good part of the river where the depth was um, high above, that he would not have hit something from below, that he would be okay? Well, what we realize, what we fail to realize, folks, is that we could be on one level of a river, but shortly down the stretch, the you know the rapid, there could be rapids, there could be the current can just change. That's that's the beauty of of nature. Sometimes that we fail to appreciate is that just because we're going straight in one direction, it doesn't mean we're going to stay straight the whole time. It doesn't mean that 
that the current is going to be the same. The current could change anywhere. And sadly, it happened here to where uh, Fulton's uh, boat not only got destroyed, but it sunk. After August of 1803, no other boat trials would be conducted along French waters or rivers until further notice. The American government placed greater concern on its negotiations with France in securing the Louisiana Territory. Funding for future boat trials was placed on hold temporarily. Well, I don't blame the fact that um, boat trials need to be placed on hold, folks, because, you know, we, America's future is at stake here, folks. We're not just, in the end, not only are we going to acquire territory from France through this Louisiana Purchase, it's going to allow... Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and their group of, um, what do you call it, settlers, or not just settlers, but explorers, to go um, west. And they need uh, provisions. I mean, they need provisions not only to last them for a year, but provisions that are going to last long term. So the Louisiana Purchase, folks, is what will allow Meriwether Lewis and William Clark along with a band of other explorers, to go west. And I do know that they will leave from what we now know as present-day St. Louis, Missouri, to go all the way to the Pacific Coast, most notably of Washington State and Oregon. Well, um, our final question of this uh, segment to the fire of his genius is the following, and I think it's one that uh, should uh, resonate because it might it will come about in other segments. But uh, were any portraits of Robert Fulton done between 1797 and 1803? I'll give you some choices. Um, well, first off, uh, if any of you all say yes, uh, you are correct. But how many portraits do you think were done? Were there six? Were there 12? Or were there two? Uh, the answer is choice C, there were two. One happened to be... Um, done by uh, Jean-Antoine Houdon, who um, was a French sculptor, and he did um, bronze statues of other prominent um, American statesmen like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, to name a few, uh, Benjamin Franklin. But, Jean, but the, um, the sculpture that uh, Jean-Antoine Houdon did of Robert Fulton I've seen it, and it's unique. Uh, for one, um, Houdon uh, captures Fulton um, as being um, charming and optimistic. Why not? I mean, Fulton is optimistic. I mean, he wants what he is setting out to achieve. He's got to be as optimistic as he can because there are other people shooting him down, most notably in England and, of course, Napoleon Bonaparte, the French government. Fulton, uh, according to Houdon's sculpture, and I would agree based upon the upon the um, how the sculpture itself of Fulton looks, the sculpture itself has uh, Fulton, um, yes, being charming and optimistic, but it's a look of unlimited sheer determination. He's looking out onto the horizon and basically saying, "Hey, look, I know what lies out there." And nobody's going to get in the way and tell me what I can and cannot do with this grand envision. The second is a self-portrait in oil uh, painting, where Fulton has hints of sorrow and fright. 
sorrow meaning that maybe I'm a little sorry for what I've done, or sorrow as to what lies in store, fright being the uncertainty behind what I am trying to accomplish. Because while as grand as inventions might be, they also can bring, in certain instances, consequences, both short and long term. There is a state of unpredictability here, because Fulton doesn't even know what the final work's outcome might yield, both short and long term. One work represents the current present state as to what is going on between this period from 1797 to 1803, whereas the other work might yield ultimate end results behind Fulton's quest for success that burns within the fire of his genius. Well, that fire of, of his genius, maybe it's like the equivalent of an Energizer bunny. It keeps on going, going, and going. And then you have to ask yourself, but where does it stop? Where do the boundaries lie? When will Fulton himself be satisfied with what he has achieved? Those are questions that, are, that we have not been able to answer just yet. Maybe somewhere down the road we might be able to answer them. But what, what I do know is that we've covered a lot of ground. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be learning more about the time frame between 1804 to 1807. Thank you again uh, for listening as always. And uh, I hope all of you have a good start to your coming uh, week. And I hope all of you have had a good Easter holiday. Take care for now and stay safe regardless of where you live in the world.